This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 29th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. The now dormant fairness doctrine was used by at least three presidents to make broadcasting dissent more difficult. And even if it doesn't come back, something just as troubling may replace it. So says John Samples, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government. His new paper, Broadcast Localism and the Lessons of the Fairness Doctrine, is now available at Cato.org. What does the public think about the First Amendment in general? If you ask about uh, the First Amendment and whether a person supports it, there is overwhelming support for the First Amendment, for free speech, freedom of religion, those general terms. Those questions attract 90% support. However, for 50 years now, when polling firms have asked about specific instances of the exercise of free speech or other First Amendment rights, it's always a much less uh, encouraging set of responses. What, what you really find is uh, very rarely majorities supporting uh, actual freedom of speech in actual concrete circumstances, like, for example, letting a controversial speaker uh, let go at a local school or something like that. Um, that does not get majority support, and that is why I think the First Amendment is so important. It really, in concrete ways, can constrain uh, what is uh, impulsive public reactions to speech. How has the Fairness Doctrine been used in the past to squelch speech? Well, the Fairness Doctrine has been used at various times in various ways, uh, to make it more difficult to say things over the broadcast media that uh, the dominant political administration doesn't want said. Uh, and that's not surprising. I mean, this, it's usually done in, uh, by requiring uh, that uh, speakers be uh, broadcast. And what that means is that you're imposing cost on people who are often uh, broadcasting controversial ideas. The problem of free speech comes in because the response of the broadcaster to the fairness doctrine is often to say not, let's have this second person come on and speak, but rather to say, you know, the costs are too high, there's too much trouble here, I'm simply not going to broadcast the original controversial speaker that caused the fairness doctrine complaint that led to this requirement. There's pretty uh, good evidence uh, that that's happened throughout uh, the history of the Fairness Doctrine from 1949 onward. But it was certainly a peak uh, in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, this was something, uh, a kind of technique that was used um, by both political parties, by more than one political administration. You saw it throughout the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations. Uh, the Kennedy administration used it against uh, what would be called right-wing or conservative fundamentalist preachers, often on small uh, radio stations who were uh, essentially attacking the administration, particularly on some of its uh, foreign policy positions about the Soviet Union. The technique was to demand equal time, demand a, a right of response, and frequently these stations were not uh, that profitable. Uh, they were marginally economic, marginal economically. And so granting free time or going through the process of a fairness complaint with the FCC was simply something that 
you know, the easier route forward was simply to say, you know, I'm not going to run these kinds of uh, uh, preachers from Oklahoma or wherever sending me tapes that are attacking Jack or attacking LBJ. Uh, and so you, you know, I mean, one of the things to notice here about the First Amendment is that these were not powerful people. These were people in the 1960s at the, that were being attacked by the Fairness Doctrine, fundamentalist preachers, uh, anti-communist, and so on. Uh, they were um, not giant TV networks or radio networks. Uh, they were people at the margins of American politics who nonetheless concerned the president even, uh, concerned uh, higher-ups in his uh, administration and in his political uh, activity. The same was true of uh, President Johnson. Uh, president Nixon actually uh, was famous uh, for his antagonism and hostility toward the television networks, which are also regulated by the FCC. And he made a very uh, straightforward effort to demand that the local affiliates of the national television networks be responsible for the fairness of uh, the news that was coming out of New York, uh, which uh, President Nixon and his allies thought you know, was biased against them. So they were trying to use a demand for fairness to make sure that these local networks would uh, self-censor, in a sense, the, what the national networks were doing. Uh, so there you have the other side, the Republican side of the coin, very explicitly making an attack. Now, they picked the wrong enemy, in a sense. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine worked fairly well against small radio stations with, uh, as I say, sort of marginal figures in them. CBS News was a different kettle of fish in 1972. The networks banded together. They resisted, and uh, they were effective in their resistance. And the, the administration backed down, and shortly thereafter, Watergate happened. And uh, so we really have no sense that the press or the media backed off because of the Fairness Doctrine. The crucial thing, though, is the administration tried, and they had the tool there to threaten the networks, uh, as well as small radio stations. What is the new fairness? The new fairness is... First, uh, what's the policies of the FCC that are going to follow on the, a kind of failure of the reviving the old fairness doctrine? Uh, that now, the old fairness doctrine coming back explicitly now seems much more politically tough than uh, anyone expected it would be. So it's not, it's not likely to happen in the near future. What will be sought, however, is ways, are ways to achieve what the ends of the fairness doctrine without the fairness doctrine. And that means, one. first of all, that means uh, requiring uh, sort of what's called local mandates or localism, that, uh, that a certain amount of uh, radio time has to be devoted to local issues. And second, uh, what goes with that is the appointment of local advisory boards that are uh, supposed to inform the uh, editors of uh, control the radio stream and the owners about local concerns. Now, the problem here and how this fits into fairness is that both of these are imposing on an independent editorial function external controls, either the requirements of uh, percentages of local uh, topics being treated. I mean, why is it that uh, the Federal Communications Commission is going to be better than a market 
oriented local radio broadcaster at uh, determining what people want to hear locally. It, uh, it's sort of like, I think it's really that you need to hear about local things and we're going to make sure you do. More insidious is the local advisory boards. They will be used to demand certain kinds of uh, broadcasting and to avoid other kinds of broadcasting. And they will be used also as, uh, in some cases, I would believe, uh, about licensing. The FCC is all about licensing. That's where its power comes from. If you don't have a license to broadcast in the United States, you can't. Uh, you can, but it's illegal and it, it's hard to do and so on. So licenses matter a lot. And if, the, if you're up for a license renewal and your advisory board says, look, this, uh, we tried to get them to respond to local concerns and they didn't hear here and there, you've got this political headache at best and you'll modify what you put on your radio or your TV to respond to that or – uh, you'll simply uh, find yourself in a f- kind of fairness doctrine fight uh, that may or may not stop change your behavior about what you broadcast. John Samples is director of the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government. You can read his latest paper, Broadcast Localism and the Lessons of the Fairness Doctrine, at cato.org. <laughs>